This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. Sometimes you run into a, I'll say, popularized planning technique, and then you realize when you start thinking about it that it actually has far broader application than the way that it is described in the general among the general public. And I think that is something that applies to what are called family limited partnerships or FLPs. And to talk about something like that, you need something who knows some somebody who knows something about them. And that's why Rachel Sass is with me today. Hello, how you doing, Brett? Yeah, I'm well. How are you? Doing pretty good, pretty good. So far, New Year's resolutions all kept. No, no, terrible fail. Oh man, and I. So you know, okay, one of my New Year's resolutions is to stop eating so much Chick Fil A. Yes. And as you're holding a drink from Chick Fil A. As I'm holding a drink from Chick Fil A right now, I I recently have discovered my love for Chick Fil A. I -hmm. was very, I was in the minority for a while, and I never liked Chick Fil A. And about about a month ago, I realized their spicy chicken sandwich with the honey mustard sauce is amazing. And I have started eating Chick-fil-A about three times a week, if not more. It was pretty Ooh. bad. Ooh. So my New Year's resolution was to stop eating Chick-fil-A so much. And so instead tonight, in keeping with this this resolution so greatly, um, I sent my husband to Target to go pick up a grocery order so we could make mm-hmm. chili tonight. But mm-hmm. Chick-fil-A happens to be right next to Target. So I also had him bring home Chick-fil-A. So I'm doing Naturally. great over here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rachel. <laughs> Weak willed. You need to you need to re up your resolution. Beginning it's, now. Yeah. You know, I've only had Chick fil A twice this new year so far. So I mean, oh. we're we're you know, we're two weeks in. So once a week I, I am reducing okay. the amount. So I'm doing better. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You are doing better. You have almost turned over a new leaf. Almost. almost. You you came right up to the edge of the precipice and you dangled the leg over. And then you retracted the leg, but you were so close. (laughs) I am also in the majority or sorry, minority on Chick-fil-A. I apologize to everybody in Texas. I don't like Chick-fil-A. I don't think it's very good. (laughs) I have never had something there where I was like, wow, that was amazing and worth all the hype. It's never happened to me. But I also understand reasonable minds can disagree. Not everybody has to agree with me on the flavor of food. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But it don't don't get the spicy chicken sandwich with the honey mustard because your mind oh. might be changed and then you'll be eating Chick-fil-A three times a week. And that's where all your money well, goes. Yeah. And I will try not to form any opinions about that sandwich, because if I do and then it's contrary to yours, I don't want us to have some sort of spat, you oh, know, Yeah. for, for yeah. the good of this friendship. I can't do that. Yeah. OK, good idea. Good idea. <laughs> All right. So family limited partnerships. Let me give a little bit of context to this uh, before we launch into it and everybody stops listening, I guess. But um, family limited partnerships, FLPs really uh, are popular. We've talked about them before on the podcast. Shameless plug for prior episodes. But um, they're they're really a creature that or a, a buzzword that 
that attaches to certain types of limited partnerships, although it doesn't have to be a limited partnership, or other entities that historically were used, um, I mean, still are used, to make gifts to family members. So you can gift away interests in the entity itself. And then for valuation purposes, uh, especially when gift tax exemptions were much lower, this was very important, um, you get a discount on the valuation. So if you put in, say, real estate into the FLP, you gift away a third. You don't value it as 33% of the value of the underlying real estate. You value it as 33% of the underlying real estate, and then you apply discounts, some of which can be substantial, 30 40%. Sometimes you see it more. Uh, and then that's what you give away. But of course, if the next day the partnership sold all the real estate and distributed the cash to the partners, the kid, grandkid, et cetera, who now owns 33%, they get 33% of those proceeds, um, not the discounted amount that was used for the gift. So it's like you can shift more value and make it look like it's worth less for gift tax purposes. That's traditional FLP planning, but that is not the kind of FLP planning I want to talk about today. You can now, do other things. Hmm? Absolutely. There's, there's a multitude of reasons why you might want to create an FLP for your family to contain your your entities. A um, bunch of good reasons. So Lots of reasons. There's no way that we could even cover all of them, frankly. Yeah. There are just too many. And but they're they're very handy. And again, it doesn't have to be a partnership. It could be an LLC, could be a corporation, although that's that's not so common. It wouldn't have to be a, a pure limited partnership. It could be a limited liability partnership or limited liability limited partnership. Almost always there's liability protection built into the entity structure itself. Um, but it can take any of those forms, any of those forms of of, uh, of entity can be used. So when we say FLP here. We mean it could be any of those things. It just depends on the circumstances. Absolutely. All right. So let's get into it. We've got a short sure. list. Like you said, we've All got right. a lot, but we've got a short list. All right. Give me your favorite. My favorite. All right. Well, I'm going to start with, I'm going to say family business governance um, because we deal a lot with families <laughs> and not all families can get along great. Not a lot, not a lot of families um, communicate in the most effective mm -hmm. manner. And so having an FLP is a control the family business and to be able to pass it along to the next generation. What we're talking about here is because now we've got this one FLP that's kind of going to be our umbrella and it can hold any underlying entities that the uh, family may have. And that's going to be your main hub. We can have a board of directors of this FLP. And so it's a great way to get younger generations involved, started in the business with the parents still being able to maintain control. Um, really great way to just have this one single hub for coordinating all of the, the family businesses. Indeed. And then you can build into that company the type of, of uh, governance structure that you want. So if you want to have a board, like a board of directors, you could have it. You can build that in. If you want to have different uh, roles for different people, you want to have a CEO and a president and a vice president and a secretary and whatever, no problem. You can build it straight into that structure. But also importantly, you can control who gets to decide those things? Uh, and then the ownership of that family entity is usually also tightly controlled. So you can't just have somebody sell off their interest to a third party. You can put some clamps down on 
who can who can become involved in this little family enterprise. Yeah, it's excellent. It's an excellent vehicle for that. Very good one. I agree that that would be pretty close to the top of my list as well. That's usually a big issue. Another one that um, that I think is understated. I know people people vary in their opinions on this is the use of FLPs to create what are called preferred partnerships. Doesn't have to be a partnership. We'll call it a preferred partnership. Basically, the idea is you would have a partnership or company, and the, and the partnership or company would have at least two classes of ownership. One class would be preferred and the other class would be common. And the preferred class is entitled to, in many cases, um, a set uh, cumulative percentage of their investment in the partnership. And so oftentimes it's it's measured off of market rates, you know, what are what are nice, good, preferred stocks going for as far as their coupon or or interest rates um, in the open market. There's an appraisal will usually look at sort of the health of the underlying company. You know, is it cash poor? Is it not cash poor? Can it cover the, the interest pay, uh, interest payment on normal uh, cash flows, et cetera? So a lot of those factors will will govern, but you're, you're going to pay this preferred unit holder this percentage, and usually that person is an older generation person. The younger generation gets the common units, and the rights of the common units are to everything after the preferred units get paid their percentage, and they get paid back their investment in the company. So if the company does terribly, the common unit holders get zero. If the company blows it out of the water, the common interest uh, holders get all the appreciation above the preferred unit payment. And of course, if you want to shift appreciation to a younger generation, that's a somewhat handy way to do it. There are ways to, to pair these things up. We'll talk about it at least one here in, in just a bit, but there are ways to kind of pair these things up with other very typical entities that exist in well-to-do families that is different from other types of techniques that are trying to do a similar thing. So they're they're not very well understood, I would say, broadly, these preferred structures. There's some very complicated rules in Section 2701 of the Internal Revenue Code and elsewhere. Um, so it, it's not like a, you would do this on the back of a napkin or you would do a DIY project, DIY project, but DIY project. Sorry. Um, you know, <laughs> that's not there, what Brian. this You'll is. Get I'll get there. <laughs> um, you know, that's not what this is. But when done properly, they can be a pretty creative power tool, powerful tool for very specific sets of circumstances. And that's a form of FLP you do not see very often. Not often enough, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, and to your point, I think it's because, like you said, it's complicated. Yeah. Right. They, they, mm -hmm. you have to get it done correctly if you're going to reap the benefits from doing it this way. All right. What would be your number two? I guess this is number three on our list, but your number two. Uh, let's see. Mine would be, I would say the how an FLP is a good bridge for cross-border planning. Mm, good one. Um, we do a lot. Thank you. Uh, we do a lot of cross-border work and especially being located here in Southern Arizona, we see a lot of work between the U S and Mexico. And one thing we, one thing that we see quite frequently is people who own property down in Mexico. 
And um, there are a lot of rules on whether or not you can own real property down at the beach. And so a lot of times we have to have uh, certain LLCs, whatever, any type of uh, just structure to hold that real property as sometimes individuals cannot hold the property themselves. Um, and so that's just one example of why you might need an FLP. And so there's a really a lot of good vehicles for that. In addition, when we're looking at other um, uh, families who may have just their family businesses have kind of just gone over into another uh, country as well. We see a lot with Mexico, like I said. Um, it could also be a really good planning vehicle for just, again, keeping everything together. Um, again, because you have two different countries involved, some countries may not recognize trust the same that here in the U.S. does. So we might be looking at looking at a specific type of entity uh, to be able to hold interest instead. So it's a really great way um, to just really create one major structure when we're looking at two different sets of, of laws and countries. Yeah, definitely. And then in that case, you're trying to pick and choose the entity. So it works in both places. Of course, that's that's what you prefer uh, or people like us prefer. That's not always possible. Sometimes it's difficult to do. But yeah, it becomes a real challenge to reach across borders, especially international borders. It's hard enough to reach across state borders. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the one of the things that we run into uh, that I think is a really curious case is that we will have, say, mom or dad or somebody that lives here in Arizona, which is a community property state, but they moved here from a non-community property state and they have property in that non-community property state, which is not community a community asset. Well, the community property rules say, the tax rules, that is, say that with when one spouse dies, you get a brand new basis on all the community assets, new tax basis. But that doesn't happen unless you have community property, it's a little quirk in the rules. And so if they have property that's not in, in our state and can't be moved here, like it's real estate, um, then it's sort of floating out there and you, you don't get this full basis adjustment at the first step. You could maybe get it if those clients form a partnership in Arizona and the partnership is owned as community property. There's a very specific IRS revenue ruling for anybody who keeps tabs with these things, it's Revenue Ruling 79-124. And so if, if you're just bored and you need to read up on these things, read that. And then that'll sort of tell you that at least in some circumstances, the IRS has blessed the ability to do that, to cause, um, say, otherwise non-community assets to get this basis step up. So it's, an, it's another way to kind of bridge across borders um, that can be, uh, can be handy. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I completely forgot to mention the whole just different states yeah it's all yeah. the states <laughs> deal with that one all the time oh <laughs> uh, the states and other ways um all right let me give you one so this is another tax basis one that has to do with what happens when somebody dies and it's nice if you can get the so-called stepped up basis on their assets well if they have assets or if there are assets in the family that are held in vehicles that don't really benefit from the stepped up basis so much, then you can have a problem. And where that's most pronounced is with what are called non-grantor trusts. These would be irrevocable trusts where the person who created the trust is deceased, typically, uh, although not always, but typically that's the case, or property that's inside of a corporation, even an S corporation. Um, so if you have appreciated assets that are inside those vehicles, but you have a living human outside, um, sometimes you start thinking weird things like, can we manufacture things so that we can get this basis step up in some way for the assets that are inside of 
that non-grantor trust or corporation. And one way you'd be able to do that would be if you have that individual and the non-grantor trust or corporation form a partnership uh, like an FLP, uh, where the trust or the corporation, they contribute their appreciated assets, the, the individual contribute, contributes assets to the partnership, um, and then those assets can, can grow and be, be managed inside the partnership. Well, when that individual dies, they get a basis step up on their interest in the partnership, and then the partnership can make what's called a 754 election. And for that deceased individual share of the partnership, you get a basis adjustment for the assets that are inside the partnership. And so there could have been appreciation on these assets that were in the corporation or the non-grantor trust that are now in the partnership, and you're getting a basis adjustment, at least as to the deceased partner's share. So you can get a little, you can sort of manipulate in, it's not going to be a full basis adjustment to those assets, but you're sort of manipulating in uh, a bit of a basis adjustment because you're exposing them through a partnership structure to the death of an individual, whereas when they're in a non-grantor trust or they're inside a corporation, trusts don't die, corporations don't die. And so therefore you don't get this basis step up. So it can be a little tricky, but uh, interesting way to use family limited partnerships or FLPs in a way that, again, I don't see very often. No, I think is underused yeah. as well, for the record. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. No, that's a, I, I don't think I've actually ever seen that structure yet before um, in action, but it, it makes a lot of sense when you're just, like you said, you're taking, let's just call it one asset for easy conversation. You're taking this one asset that you wouldn't be able to have a step-up basis. Let's expose it to someone who potentially is going to, will die, <laughs> someone who will die and be able to have that step up a basis and then, yeah, expose that little piece to it. I like it. I like yeah, that trick. Yeah, it could be That's handy. I, I'd, many years ago, when I first started thinking about this, it was for a client that owned a bunch of farmland. And at the time when grandpa had bought the farmland, you could only buy a certain number of acreage per uh, purchaser. And and also at the time, it was it was really common to have a corporation that the tax rules were more favorable. Um, they were more flexible from a tax perspective. And so he had set up a bunch of different corporations and those corporations then were individual buyers of farmland because that's how you had to structure it. So they had all these corporations that owned all this historic farmland, which, of course, had appreciated enormously in value. And we were down to like the kid and grandkid level of ownership. In the, in the generations, we were thinking, hmm, what can be done? Could anything be done to get a basis adjustment? Because they've got all this built-in capital gain on this appreciated asset inside the corporation. So these are the sorts of conversations we would have. I like it. Very clever. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> all right. Well, let's do one more. What, what's your uh, your final final favorite? Final favorite. I would say, so having an FLP is just a really good way of creating a bucket for everyone to pool their assets in and be able to hold investments. Mm -hmm. So families, um, we could get to your, to your point earlier, we've got multiple generations, pool everyone's assets together so we could use this um, as a vehicle for investment purposes. Um, we've seen it before where, uh, Ah, oh, the term is just like skipping my mind right now, but where you have to be the like the preferred type of investor, mm -hmm. um, right? Where you a have credited investor. Yeah, that's the word. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and apparently instead of Chick-fil-A, I need coffee. <laughs> 
investor where where you need enough capital behind you need to be re- to really show that you are considered a a worthy investor right mm-hmm. this is one way of doing that right by being able to pull everyone's assets together and use it as an investment vehicle so again you're simplifying things for a big family structure and then you're using it to be able to help everyone out more so in the future yeah it's so true and especially where you have a wide variety of different assets where when say mom or dad die, it's kind of a pain in in the neck to divide those assets up among a bunch of different people. Like it just costs a lot of money. It's very expensive. I mean, if somebody wants to pay lawyers like us to do all that work, we're not telling them no. And sometimes there's no way around it, but a little bit of planning can go a long way because if they can put it into an entity like you're talking about, pool it in one spot. And basically what mom or dad own is the ownership of that entity. Then when mom and dad die and you're trying to split everything up, you just divide the entity. So if it's got to go three ways, you just divide it 33, 33, 33 among, say, the kids or the kids' new trust. That's it. That's the division. There's no other division that has to happen. That simplifies things enormously. And it's, again, it's one of these like, you just, you know, if you think about it ahead of time, you can sort of preempt the administrative burden in the future by just doing it the simple way. Do exactly. the, you kind of do the work up front, really. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it's honestly, it's easier to going back to the first point of right where we're creating this structure for families in terms of I mean, that's kind of what you're doing, right? You're creating the family governance vehicle, mm-hmm. the split to be able to keep that governance going on and on throughout the future generations. And right. He's on an attorney, which I, I love those type of people. Um, I mean, we could we could sit here all day and, you know, kind of help break down these structures when when mom or dad passes away. But if they want to keep things very simple. Mm-hmm. It's a good. Yeah, it's a great if you want to keep things simple, if you want to keep things sort of uniform, it's a great way to do it. The big variable in all of these structures, obviously, are the human beings involved. Mm-hmm. And uh, human beings sometimes will go out of their way to destroy things that weren't their idea. And, you know, our clients are not immune to that tendency on occasion. Thankfully, it's not everybody. Uh, but on occasion, they want to just destroy everything that's been done in the past because <laughs> they weren't involved and they don't understand it. And they're not going to take two seconds to understand it. But that's humans. So setting aside the humans, all of these things work perfectly exactly the way you describe it. <laughs> Maybe perfectly is too strong, but they work well. How about that? They work well. They get the job done the way. There you go. Exactly. Most of the time. Yeah. Um. All right. Now that's a good list and probably a list of uses for FLPs that many people were not imagining before they listened to this podcast. And that is not the complete list in the world. There are other ways uh, to use FLPs. But I would just my uh, my opinion is that we do not use FLPs generally as a profession, say if you're talking about uh, lawyers, accountants, financial advisors, et cetera, who sort of surround well-to-do families. We don't we don't use them and we don't encourage them enough. They're, mm-hmm. they are so powerful in all the things they can do. And sometimes when I talk about them, people be like, well, what about a trust? Can't you use a trust? And I have to remind them that, no, 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 you don't understand. At the top of the structure is the trust. The trust is an owner. What the trustee does is collect checks. That's the trustee's job. And what the trustee owns are the the FLP interests. So always at the top, there's a trust collecting money like an owner does. But below that is this very creative entity structure that we're describing that can do all these things and more. So, Rachel, it is always a pleasure. Thank you again for doing it. 
Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on. And good luck getting back on track with your New Year's resolutions, which now we all know that you're accountable to to me and every person listening to this to get back on track. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure. I will will try. (laughs) I'm going to hold off on Chick-fil-A for at least two weeks. Excellent. You heard it it here first. That's very good commitment. Hey, listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.